On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today, we continue this installment of the E-Series with Conversations in Care, Setting the Goal, a conversation between CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, and Senior Medical Director, Dr. Genevieve Robleski. Let's get started. Trent joined Hospice of the Piedmont in 2013 as the organization's third CEO since its founding in 1981. Prior to joining the organization, Trent worked for 16 years in long-term care with Triad Medical Services in Yadkinville, overseeing operations and management of a statewide network of almost 2,000 long-term care beds. Most recently, he, had, he led the organization in navigating a successful merger with Hospice of Randolph. Thanks for being with us again today, Trent. My pleasure, Ryan. Joining Trent today is Senior Medical Director of Hospice of the Piedmont, Dr. Genevieve Robleski, or Dr. Jen, as many of her patients call her. Dr. Jen also joined the organization in 2013. As Senior Medical Director, Dr. Robleski has responsibility for overseeing the organization's clinical practice, but also enjoys engaging with and treating patients herself. Dr. Robleski's past clinical experience includes several years of successful practice in the field of hospice and palliative medicine, including two years of clinical practice in the pain and palliative care service at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Robleski completed an accelerated BAMD program at Lehigh Drexel University and completed her residency in internal medicine at the Medical College of Pennsylvania and her fellowship in geriatric medicine at the VA Medical Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Jen has completed other graduate medical education in acupuncture at the Helms Medical Institute at UCLA Berkeley. She she maintains board certifications in internal medicine as well as hospice and palliative medicine with additional qualifications in geriatrics. Dr. Robleski is a member of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine and is a guest lecturer on palliative medicine for High Point University's Physician Assistant Program. Dr. Robleski maintains consulting medical privileges at Wake Forest Baptist Health, High Point Medical Center, as well as in Novant Health System. We are honored to have you with us today, Dr. Jen. Thank you. Now, without any further ado, I hand the discussion over to you, Trent. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Jen. It's so good to see you. Nice to be here, Trent. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate your being here with me. You know, uh, Ryan gave your introduction. You're, as we all know, here at Hospice of the Piedmont and Hospice of Randolph, you're quite an accomplished physician. Um, But aside from all of those really wonderful accomplishments that you've um, made in your uh, career, for the benefit of those who are watching today, it might be interesting to know what actually led you to become a hospice physician? Well, you know, Trent, um, several years after completing my fellowship in geriatric medicine, I moved to Northeast Pennsylvania. And there I met a gentleman who was actually starting a brand new hospice. And he offered me the position of the physician. And I thought it sounded really interesting. And I thought, you know, 
I felt pretty good about my bedside manner and I really enjoyed listening to patients and I thought it was right up my alley. <clears throat> I quickly learned that I actually did not have the appropriate training, even though I had trained in internal medicine. I had taken care of intensive care unit patients who had died. I had trained in geriatrics for two years. I had taken care of many frail elderly patients, but I had never been mentored in the care of the patient at the very end of life. I had never been educated in what tools a physician might have in their toolbox to relieve suffering in patients for whom life-saving treatments were no longer appropriate. And I immediately got myself to a conference. It was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'll never forget it. It was a small room. There were not many doctors there because it was in the relative early days of hospice. And I sat there and I listened to a number of sessions, lectures, addressing the care and comfort of patients at end of life. And I have to tell you, Trent, I was surprised at how much I didn't know and thrilled at the same time that I was being given so much information that I could take back to Northeast Pennsylvania. And I took it back and I started to use these tools. And I found so much gratification in the relief of suffering that was so palpable. I said to myself, this is my calling. This is really what I want to do. Wow. So you, you describe something that sounds like it was such a departure from what you had known or learned previously. Might you make a comment about that? It's stunning to me that even as a geriatrics fellow in a program collaborating with a very fine academic institution, the University of Pennsylvania, that the actual care of the imminently dying patient was not addressed. I had no real tools in my toolbox as it pertained to pain medication or the use of medications for the relief of other physical discomforts. Mm -hmm. And so I think things have changed. It's been a very long time trend. So things have changed. But it was in the early days, and um, I felt like I'd been led into some secret society of physicians who really had some secret knowledge on really how to, to help people in a difficult situation at the end of life. And, and help people live better, right? And help them live better because, you know, hospice is not just about imminently dying patients, let's be clear. And some of the tools that I use and our, my colleagues use some of the medications, for example, are used well in advance of a patient's death to provide comfort and symptom management safely and effectively. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, hospice is a, is, a, is a program that certainly cares for patients well upstream of the imminently dying patient. Right. You know, one of the things that we've talked about, I've talked about with many of the guests who've sat in the same seat as you over the last several weeks is that um, two, two things that really in healthcare we're really unable to fix, and that's 
one is aging and the other one is dying, right? I mean, both of those things are sort of medical eventualities for all of us um, or, or eventualities in life. But in your time as a physician, and particularly as a hospice physician, have you found that the patients that you've cared for, do they have a common set of thoughts or fears maybe even, or even anxieties? So absolutely, there are some common themes. I think we can all acknowledge intellectually that as humans, we have a finite time on, in, in living, that we all will die. This is an intellectual acknowledgement we all have. And when we attend funerals of family and friends, we feel sad, but we also feel, well, this isn't my time. And, and so that concept of my mortality is something that I think as humans, we're wired to put, let's say on a shelf. It's not something I'm gonna deal with today. And we don't really think about it very often. Mm -hmm. um, if we become chronically ill, we tend to be visiting physicians increasingly frequently as the disease progresses. And with each visit, if our condition has changed, treatments are modified, perhaps they're enhanced, new things are tried. And so we're on this um, path that feels like there's another tool the doctor can use if things don't go well. When the concept of hospice is introduced, this is disorienting and somewhat terrifying because we have now been, our path is somewhat changed in our minds oftentimes. We've entered a new room. We've crossed over a threshold from there was always another treatment to we've started to have limits in the number of options available. We've used all of the medications and treatments. The disease has really taken hold. And so now we cross over into a new reality, which is we actually have to take the box down and really confront the fact that we are, in fact, mortal beings. So as I said, it's somewhat disorienting because sometimes patients have been on a very aggressive medical treatment and all of a sudden, now, sometimes it's, many times it's been more of a gradual progression of disease and a tipping point occurs where the physician acknowledges that I've done all I can to prolong life meaningfully and as much as I'd like to fix the problem, we are entering a phase where maybe we should focus on other things as well as the medical treatment. Maybe we should focus on quality of life, balancing treatments versus bur burdens. You know, what you cite is interesting. I think if I caught that correctly, you said uh, something to the effect of, uh, of prolonging your life meaningfully. Um, and so it, we're, the tipping point, it sounds like that you're referring to is this shift in um, a very treatment oriented um, 
modality of care versus one that really aims to understand who you are as a person, what's important for you, and how we help you achieve the things that are most important in your life. Exactly. <clears throat> because when one thinks about the end of life, one thinks about what's important to them. Mm -hmm. the, the question of what was my life all about comes up. What was the meaning of my life? And are there things I need to address before I die? Mm -hmm. On many levels, emotionally, psychosocially, with family and friends, spiritually. So a person takes stock. But let me just say, um, as much as there's a refocusing in some respects, let me just acknowledge that in hospice, we continue treatments that are life prolonging. In other words, if someone has medications for heart condition, those medications are continued. What hospice provides is an additional several layers of support on top of the standard medical care for whatever condition one has. So what I'm trying to say, Trent, is hospice is not a program where we withdraw care. We actually add layers of support and care that a person did not have before. Because it's focused more on this larger sort of notion of existence. It's not just the medical, physiological, or, or symptomatic um, management, um, but, uh, but more focused on how you feel. Or, or maybe even more importantly, how your family is feeling about how you're feeling as a patient. Absolutely, because the family in many ways is, is the unit of care. The patient is at the center of that unit. But the family's emotional state, the family's ability to cope with watching you potentially decline over time, the family's reaction to you're not able to take the medications anymore. All of these things are very challenging. And that is why hospice provides a team. You know, the pain that a patient feels about leaving their loved ones, the, the, the pain that a patient might feel about uh, a disconnect from their children for one reason or another and wanting to resolve that. These are just a couple of examples of things that create suffering and which a medication will not really address. And this is why we have a team of providers. You know, oh, sorry, I was going to ask, I mean, say actually, remarkably, you, you're, you're talking about the pain of losing a loved one that really isn't, it's not pain in the conventional medical sense. Right. It's not, but any emotional and spiritual discomfort will oftentimes accentuate physical pain. So we look at the person as a, as a whole, a whole in a holistic way. And, and, and we have team members who help 
the physician who, who is mainly and focused on medical management. Certainly palliative physicians have a lot of tools in terms of psychosocial support, et cetera. But we're fortunate enough in hospice to have professionals whose, whose life work has been psychosocial support, the social worker, and then chaplain for spiritual support. So recognizing that a human's suffering is multidimensional, um, hospice works to address all of those issues in a team, in a team oriented way. Do you think that that is a, it sounds like you might describe that as a tremendous sort of differentiator or departure for lack of a better term from this, from what we might expect to be the standard methodology of engagement within the medical system? There are pockets of team approach in, in medicine in today's world. There are pockets, but it isn't a uniformly applied um, approach to care. And I think I've been, it's just been one of the many privileges I've had to have the opportunity to work in a team because of the reasons described. Right. I have to say that my geriatric trainings had a similar model because geriatrics oftentimes is, is administered in a, in a team approach. So I was used to it before I even came to hospice and recognized the benefit. Mm -hmm. All of the team members have something special to offer. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned, if I, if I can go back for just a moment and capture something that you said earlier, um, you said something to the effect of um, uh, hospice is not about withdrawing care. We oftentimes say that, you know, hospice isn't the difference between curative care and doing nothing. It's about arranging your priorities in order to live a better, more fulfilling life. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about that? You know, there are things that we do treat, right? I mean, that you've treated as a hospice physician. You know what, we treat, um, there are some things that we aren't able to offer, but by and large, we offer the standard of care for a variety of disease processes. And along the way, um, patients may have an acute event, mm -hmm. um, an infection, for example. Um, if a patient's prognosis is months and they've been living a fulfilling life in the context of hospice, we treat an infection to return them to a functionality that they were enjoying a week ago. So having said that, every treatment plan has to take into account what is it that the patient is hoping for? What are the patient's priorities? And where is the patient in the trajectory of their disease? Will the treatment affect a positive outcome and one in which they're hoping for? And is it re realistic? These are questions that we have to grapple with with each patient because each one is an individual and is in a different level of, of function. And yeah, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. You know, I've, I've spent a long time in, in, in healthcare, though not as a clinician, and I've, I've talked with many patients' families who are grappling with or maybe even patients themselves um, who are grappling with these really complex decisions of is, is the next 
is the next series of whatever it might be, right? Is the next series of treatments that I'm contemplating, are, are they really what I want? Are they really, I can have them, but does it fulfill something? Does it help me achieve something that I'm looking for? And so understanding that I think is pretty key, right? It is. I think it's always important to ask, what is the likelihood that the treatment will actually work? Hmm. And what can I expect in terms of side effects from the treatment? Mm -hmm. And how will it impact what I'm hoping to do with the next few months of my life? These are some questions that need to be asked when thinking about a variety of treatments. And, and hospice is no different, I suspect. Right? Correct. And it, it, it comes, it brings me to the concept of what can be done. There's a lot that can be done in, for patients in terms of medical care. There is a lot, there are a lot of medical treatments available for a variety of conditions, even as a person approaches the end of life. The question sometimes, what needs to be asked really is, I know what can be done. The question is, should it be done? And whether it should be done needs to be driven by the patient's wants, needs, priorities in the context of how effective will it be and what will the burden be mm. and how will it affect my life. And, and maybe even my life, my family's life, and my, or, my, or my family's life, because some of our patients are cognitively impaired and, and can't make those decisions, right? right. right. And so um, families are left to, to make these decisions, and, and sometimes and often they struggle. Is it, is it fair to say that when someone first, you first encounter a patient, that what they want at that moment might be different than sort of what they want a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, because people live varying lengths of time in hospice service, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> because when they first come onto the program, as I said, they've come from a, a, a state where they have been engaging in a lot of medical care. And they might may have been comfortable with the treatments, whatever they are, the um, treatment for uh, their heart condition, the medication regimen that they have to follow, for example. And so as the disease progresses, patients um, become less functional. What do I mean by that? A person who was able to walk, albeit with difficulty, now is limited to the chair and maybe to the bed. Their ability to eat and drink normally may be impaired. Swallowing all of those pills may be challenging. Mm -hmm. They may have over the period of time where they've transitioned from having, albeit a limited functionality, a good life because people adapt to their, their decline. People do. Um, but what happens eventually is that that decline comes along with reprioritization. They may have achieved some of the things that they wanted to achieve in terms of communicating with family and friends, some important things. 
They may have taken a last trip to the beach. They may recognize that now these things are becoming harder. And so the treatment plan changes to meet the patient's condition, the patient's tolerability of the treatment plan, et cetera. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's about how we facilitate better living. I mean, I think that's basically what you just described. Right. And, and as, as this happens, remind ourselves that the family is observing all of this and is trying to, to accept that their loved one is no longer able to do what they used to do and or engage in the treatments they used to engage in. So once again, psychosocial support and spiritual support for not only the patient, but the family. I think one of the most important things for families is to feel they've done everything they could for their loved one. Mm -hmm. And I think that they, all, they, they do, but what they can do is provide a loving presence and be accepting of the, um, the limitations that medical science has to offer at some point in the patient's treatment. Thank you for joining us for part one of our discussion, Conversations in Care, Setting the Goal, with Trent and Dr. Robleski. We hope you have found this conversation both engaging and informative as Dr. Jen unpacked her experiences with patients and families as a hospice physician and how understanding their needs, wants, and priorities has been essential to hospice care. Join us next time as we conclude this conversation with a deeper dive into the choices, treatments, and experiences one can expect at end of life under hospice services. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.